which one do I want? Oh, that's the one. Yep, okay, you can you can carry on. Great, here we go. Let's share that screen. There we go. That's fine. Let's read Psalm 78 then from verse 1. Oh, my people, hear my teaching, it says. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Okay, that's the introduction to the whole thing, and it gives you the feel of what's going to come. It's going to be something important, something valid and, and vital. It says, I will open my mouth in parables. And you might remember that that's a verse that uh, Matthew says in the New Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. So we're talking that strange word parables or rhapsodies in some translations means something that doesn't make sense on the surface of it. But when you think about it, it kind of does. There are hidden depths in what's being said. And so what's going to happen in Psalm 78, actually, uh, spoiler alert, is you're going to go right through the history of Israel in the Old Testament and the great things that God did for them. You get that in three Psalms, 78, 105 and 106. And the reason for doing it here is not just to teach a history lesson. It's because in that story, there are hidden depths. It's not just history, it's a parable. And it talks to us about the way in which we relate to God and he relates to us. That's what Psalm 78 is really all about. So let's have a look now at uh, uh, the psalm. First of all, though, before I get to the psalm itself, I want to talk about where it is in the book of Psalms. Because as we said a few weeks ago, Every psalm comments on those around it. And if you want to understand a psalm, if you're having trouble sort of getting anything out of a particular psalm, look at what comes before, look at what comes after. Because the psalms are arranged. The very earliest manuscripts we have already have it divided into five different books. And in most English translations these days, you get uh, the, the, the start and finish of the five books mentioned. This is the way they go. 1 to 41 is one book, mainly Psalms of David. 42 to 72 is the second. And then the one we're in is 73 to 89. Now, five books, that sounds like the five books of the law, doesn't it? And although a lot of strange things have been said about the way in which these five books of Psalms fit together, one thing I think you can definitely say is that the content that's been chosen for those five different parts of the Hebrew hymn book reflects the interests of those different books of the law. So 1 to 41 mirrors the book of Genesis, 90 to 106 mirrors the book of Numbers. The same themes, the same topics lie behind them. So if you look at Genesis, for instance, it's about beginnings. And that's what you find in the first book of Psalms, the absolute basics of a relationship with God, the absolute basics of how he's put things together and how he relates to us. Exodus is about deliverance. It's about getting out of Egypt. There are lots of Psalms of deliverance in that second book of Psalms. Numbers is about wandering, being lost, 
following a circuitous route through the desert before you get to the promised land. And there's more about wandering and, and being astray, just not knowing where you are in the uh, fourth book of Psalms. In the fifth one, Deuteronomy, it's about coming home coming home to the worship of God and it ends with a great burst of praise as finally you you reach the temple and everything's fantastic. How about Leviticus then? Because that's where we are. Well, Leviticus, I suppose, is, is two things, isn't it? First of all, it's a book about the laws of God. It's the book of law. But it's much more because if you read Leviticus, it tells you more about what you do when you've broken those laws. So it's about law, but it's also about forgiveness. It's about restoring relationship. And so you find in this section of 17 Psalms, right at the heart of the book of Psalms, uh, uh, and a stress on, first of all, God's authority, his law. He's in charge of everything. And second, God's forgiveness and his patience again and again when his people go wrong. What's the central verse of this section of the Psalms? Well, it's not in this particular Psalm. Uh, it's in Psalm 81, which is another one in this collection. And if you look at the very centre of Psalm 81, which is the middle of this collection, eight psalms before it, eight psalms after it, right in the middle verses of that psalm, you get this, the verse that I think sums up what this whole group of psalms is all about. And it says this, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. So this whole section is about wandering away from God serving the wrong God instead of the true one. And it's about God speaking again and again and saying, listen, please listen, if you would, but listen to me. And that very much is what Psalm uh, 78 in its own way uh, tries to show from Israelite history. This is what God keeps on saying to his people. Who wrote these Psalms in book three? Well, that's the, the, the final thing about book three before we actually get down to the Psalm. You find that if you look at the the the, the the, 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 the Psalms, uh, 71 to 83 are written by Asaph. So our one, 78, comes right in there. We'll see who Asaph was in a moment. 84 and 85, well, oh, 86 also is written by David. There's only one Psalm of David in this collection. And I think if you read Psalm 86, you see why that is. It fits in this collection of Psalms about forgiveness, about coming back to God, about being under God's authority in a way that it wouldn't fit anywhere else. And then you get two groups. Of, oh, no, no, wait a minute. 89 is by Ethan the Ezraite. Who was he? We'll see in a moment. And the other Psalms are all written by the sons of Korah. Now, who are all these people? Well, we know about David, but Asaph, Ethan, and the sons of Korah. Also, you find that 88 says it was written with Heman the Ezraite, who presumably is Ethan's brother, but we don't know for sure. So who are these people? Well, the sons of Korah were priests whose job it was to lead the worship in the temple. And it's interesting that they were descendants of Korah, because if you remember back in the, in the days of Moses, Korah was one of the three people who started a rebellion against Moses, somebody who turned away from God big time, and who as a result was swallowed up in, in, in the earth. But it says, revealingly, the sons of Korah, however, were not destroyed. And so these people who come from a background of rebellion, unfaithfulness, are the very people who are picked to be washed clean, put in the temple and lead the worship for everybody else. How about Asaph, Ethan and Heman? What, how do they fit in? Well, you find them mentioned quite a bit in the Old Testament when it comes to the worship of the temple. 
So, for example, when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem in the first place, the musicians He-Man, Asaph and Ethan, there are our boys, were to sound the bronze cymbals. And we know they were singers as well, so they were multitasking musicians. Later on, when the temple worship was organized, the temple wasn't built yet, but David had all the people in, in uh, position who were going to lead the worship. Asaph, Jeduthun, that's Ethan, he's got a different name there. Asaph, Jeduthun and Heman were under the supervision of the king. He was directly in charge of what they did because they were so important in worship. When the temple was finished, Asam, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, Stroke, Ethan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. And even 300 years later, you find that when Josiah brings everything back to the temple, the musicians were in the places prescribed by David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. And so these guys, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, were psalm writers, they were poets, they were musicians, they were people who led worship and engaged everybody else in worship. And we believe that Psalm 78, with its history of the Israelites, was probably used at one point in the year to make people look back as they worshipped in the temple on everything that had happened through Israelite history up to that point and say, look, we can see God in this, can't we? We can see ourselves in this and we can understand a little bit more deeply how it is to fall away from God and then come back to him. Now, I, I sell this to start with because I think it's important to understanding the psalm. If you look at how the psalm is organised and what actually happens in Psalm 78, you find it goes a bit like this. The first bit from verses 1 to 8, the bit we've read already, is the introduction that says, Hear, O my people. Listen, this is something vitally important. And it's not just important for us, it's for every generation. Teach it to your kids. Get them to teach it to their kids. God wants us to be taught through every generation. God hasn't just done these things in history as a, a succession of battles and wars and kings and princesses. No, this is stuff through which he shows us what kind of God he is, how he relates to us, how the human heart can wander away from him and how patient he is in bringing us back. So after that introduction, you get a, a description of how Israel rejects God in the first place from verses 9 to 20. Let's just read a few of those so we've got the feel of it. Uh, verse 9, the men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the, in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. And then you get a description of some of the things that God did. Uh, to keep his people, to get his people out of Egypt and then to keep them through the desert. And then uh, Israel continued, verse 17, to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They willfully put God to the, text, to, to the test by demanding the food they craved. And then you get uh, God's response from verses 21 to 31. And it's a gracious response. Um, when the Lord heard them, he was very angry. His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel for they did not believe in God or trust to his deliverance. And you might expect it to go on. And so he burned them all up. But it doesn't, does it? It says, yet he gave a command to the skies above. This is verse 23. And opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. And so this whole section says, if we're faithless to him, he remains faithful to us, for he cannot deny himself, just as Paul was later to say to Timothy. God responds with patience, mercy and grace. Guess what happens? Verses 32 to 43, Israel is at it again. 
And this is a kind of fuller description of what uh, he's already said. In spite of all this, verse 32, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. There's no security in life. There's no enjoyment of life unless you're in the right relationship with the one who knows how it's supposed to go. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was the rock, that God most high was the redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. What kind of things did they do then? Well, it says uh, uh, that uh, in verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his miraculous signs in Egypt. So once again, you're back in the same situation. And having talked about the miraculous signs in Egypt, he then tells you what those signs were. And the, the words of uh, verse 44 onwards, uh, in many cases, come straight from the book of Exodus. Clearly what these guys have decided to do, or Asaph has decided to do in this psalm, is to turn the words of Exodus into a poem. The people know this story. They've read Exodus. They've had it read to them. And now they're going to sing it in the temple. And so you get all of the, the plagues of Egypt and the way in which God brings them through in a remarkable way. It says after the description of the plagues in verse 52, but he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert. He guided them safely so they were unafraid, but the sea engulfed their enemies. Thus he brought them to the border of his holy land, to the hill country his right hand had taken. He drove out nations before them and allotted the lands to them as an inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes. And you might think, well, so at this point, they'll have learned their lesson. They'll be fine. And guess what happens? Once again, you have a section of just four verses where Israel's rejection of God comes out again. But they put God to the test, says verse 56, and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Like their fathers, they were disloyal and faithful, faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. And when God heard them, he was very angry. And so God responds once again. And this time he responds in judgment as well as in mercy. Verse 60, he abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh. That's the place, if you remember, where Eli and then Samuel ministered before God. Uh, and it was in the northern part of Israel. Actually, it was in the territory of Ephraim, the tribe that was mentioned earlier on. We'll hear a bit more about Ephraim in a minute. But um, God abandoned that tabernacle. Uh, and sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. The Philistines captured the ark. He gave his people over to the sword. He was very angry with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men and their maidens had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword and their widows could not weep. That seems to bring together both the time when the Israelites lost Shiloh and lost the ark, and also uh, the time when God moved in judgment against the city of Jerusalem. We think probably that this, this, this psalm was updated after uh, the uh, exile into Babylon because some of the words sound very like the book of Ecclesiastes. 
uh, Ecclesiastes, sorry, Lamentations. And uh, um, in fact, Lamentations in Psalm 78 are, are linked in Jewish worship in, in various ways because it's all about unfaithfulness. It's all about God's patience and yet God's punishment. And so finally, you've got God's response. The Lord awoke as from sleep, as a man wakes from the stupor of wine. Now, you have to be careful, haven't you, when you, you read what God is doing in this psalm because it's described in human terms. God doesn't really wake up at this point because he who watches Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's awake all the time. He knows exactly what's going on. It's just that from a human point of view, it looks as if God has suddenly woken up and said, oh, Jeremy, what am I doing? Oh, I've got to do something here. It looks like that because God has suddenly changed direction. And so similarly, earlier on when it says God's anger rose against his people, well, it's not that God suddenly lost his temper. I'm going to sort out these Israelites once and for all. God doesn't do that. It's just how it looks from a human point of view. So you've got to be careful when you, you, you read this stuff about God's reaction. But God reacts suddenly here in a way that nobody was expecting, just as if he's woken up from a drunken sleep. God doesn't get drunk either, but that's another matter. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And as people sang this song and heard it sung to them in the temple, they would look around the temple and think, yep, we're here. We're on Mount Zion. We're in the place that God has chosen, where God has given us a second chance. And this is where we need to be, 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 be faithful to God. Of course, Psalm 78 ends with a question mark. It doesn't complete Israelite history. We know what happens after this. The people who sang it originally didn't. And so it simply ends with David. He chose David, his servant, verse 70, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. And you'd expect it to end, and so they all lived happily ever after. But the psalm doesn't end that way. And if you read on in the other psalms in the section, the people who wrote these psalms were perfectly aware that that wasn't the end of the story. This was going to have to be something that the Israelites remembered down through the generations, year after year, generation after generation, because the possibility of failure, of falling away, was always there. There was always the awful possibility that they could lose it all. So that's the psalm. And I think in it, the, the, the interesting thing is the three sections that talk about Israel's rejection, because I think you talk about three problems that we've got. There's a problem of disbelief for a start. Just not believing God's word, not believing he can keep his promises. Then there's a problem of discontent when the Israelites think, you know, God can do these things for us. OK, he's brought us out of Egypt and he's brought water out of the rock. But can he also produce meat? And uh, uh, verses we haven't read talk about that. And you say, you know, this is something we've not seen before. So can God actually do it? And discontent. We want meat. It's okay being free from having to build uh, bricks without straw every day. But here we are in the wilderness and we want something to eat. Give us some, some, some food. So God sends manna. And say, well, manna's all right, but we, we didn't set out to be vegetarians. Give us a, a, a meat diet. And so God sends the quail. Uh, but they're discontented and they want their own way. And the third thing is distractions. Even after they get to their own country. You find that uh, they're turning away to other gods. They're trying God's patience by putting up idols, by serving gods that are no gods. And it's as if having got it right, having understood finally what God wants, they keep on being distracted in other directions and they will not stay faithful, whatever happens.
Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a very famous Bible expositor and also a qualified psychologist, used to say that the human personality consists of mind, will and emotions. And I think that's a pretty good summary. Actually, I think disbelief is a problem with your mind. Can you really trust God to do this for you? Can he really do all that he promises or is it just make-believe? Is it just a fairy story? That's a problem with your mind, with belief. Discontent is a problem with your will. I want meat. I want this. I want that. I will serve God, but he's got to give me that job, that wife, that whatever it happens to be. And so our will gets in the way of doing what God wants in God's time. Distractions, well, that's the emotional bit, isn't it? When your eyes keep getting distracted by something off to the side that just looks very attractive. Like Achan, do you remember the guy who was, was, was put to death in the days of Joshua? Uh, he'd set out to be a soldier for God, to do everything that Joshua had commanded the army to do, but his eyes were distracted by money, by a nice robe, by all kinds of things that he took and then buried in the earth because he just couldn't pass them over. His emotions were stirred and he wanted those things for himself. So we're going to look at those three problems for a minute, says he, having taken half his time already. So let's start with the first one, the, 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 the mind problem, disbelief. Why, first of all, does it talk about Ephraim? Ephraim, after all, is only one of the 12 tribes. That's the territory of Ephraim right there. And you can see Ephraim's an important tribe. Yeah, they always were. They, they, they're too big for their boots. They always thought they were more important than they actually were. You see that in the references to them in the Old Testament. But they were important. And uh, they were, their territory, as you can see, is right at the heart of the country of Israel. It starts about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So they're right at the heart of Israelite affairs. They're the southernmost boundary of the northern tribes. And they face on to Benjamin and Judah, the tribes that were left behind afterwards, uh, after they were carried off into captivity. And they thought they were pretty important. Uh, this is what um, a Jacob the grandfather uh, of Ephraim and Manasseh said about Ephraim and Manasseh, then Manasseh is Ephraim's brother. You'll see his territory is a lot bigger there as well. This is what he said about them when he was blessing them at his death. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. Now, I guess this blessing is mainly looking at Ephraim because the word Ephraim means fruitful. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed supple. And Ephraimites were strong archers. They lived in a hilly kind of a country, so they were hunters, and they were renowned for their skill with the bow. They were the snipers of their day. His bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed supple because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father God who helps you. So Ephraim and Manasseh were given that prophecy about what they would be like if everything worked out for them under God's will as they went on through history. What do we know about what Ephraim was like? Well, the first thing you've got to say is he was the younger son who came before the older one. When Joseph brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be blessed by their granddad, he put them on uh, different sides of his father and his father put his hand on the head of the younger one. And Joseph said, no, dad, sorry, your eyes are not too good this morning. This is the older one over here. And Jacob more or less said, no, but it's a younger one who's going to get the blessing. He's going to be the bigger one. He's going to be the more important one. 
And Ephraim always was the one who pushed to the front from that point onwards. He was the one who thought he was more important. It was the, Ephraim was the tribe that resented being left out when the Israelites went to war. When Gideon went to fight the Midianites, he didn't ask the Ephraimites. They weren't really that important at that point. They weren't in the right place. But when uh, the Midianites were chasing away, uh, he got hold of Ephraim and said, now's the point, now come in, chase them. And the Ephraimites were most resentful. They said, why didn't you ask us before? We were just about to come and help you. Why didn't you tell us we could do that? And then later on, you find in the days of the judges, Jephthah starts another army and chases out another lot of invaders. And this time the, the Ephraimites are so embittered that they won't be talked round. And they start a fight and lose 42,000 of their own warriors as a result of that. But they always wanted to be in the front. They always wanted to be the important ones. They had the idea of that they were more important than anybody else. And so later on in history, you find when Gideon's son decides he wants to be a king, they are the people who anoint a breakaway king. It's in their territory at Shiloh that Abimelech gets himself crowned. Later on, more importantly yet, they're the tribe that splits Israel into two. And when the northern tribes go away from the southern tribes, Jeroboam becomes the king of the north. He's an Ephraimite. Who's the prophet who tells him he's going to do that? Ahijah. He's an Ephraimite. And so Ephraim was always a divisive, pushy, controversial kind of tribe. And for that reason, the Israelites had a love-hate relationship with Ephraim. And the prophets in the Old Testament used the word Ephraim as a word to sum up not just this tribe, but the attitude of all of those 10 tribes in the north. This is what Israel's like, they're saying. And you find that in the book of Hosea. Hosea, oh yes, and later on you find too, they were tempted to enslave their kinsmen from Judah when they conquered them in war. And uh, they led them back in triumph to, to Samaria. And uh, it took a prophet called Oded to stand, hey, hang on a minute, these are Israelites. Okay, you may have walked away from them, but they're still your brothers and your kinsmen. You can't turn them into slaves. And at that point, there were two ashamed to carry on so they sent those guys back home so that's the kind of people they were but uh, Ephraim was used as a, a kind of symbol for the whole nation of Israel you find that in prophets like Hosea for instance and Hosea uh, says this about uh, the, the northern nation of Israel when Israel was a child I loved him out of Egypt I called my son but the more they were called the more they went away from me they sacrificed to the bales and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. Ephraim was self-confident, a tribe that felt it could do everything by itself. And, you know, I think that's the point at which we start having problems of disbelief with God. When in most situations, I can handle it. I'm on top of this. I don't need God to do this. I can do it myself. And then suddenly we hit something that... We can't deal with. And because we're not used to relying on God in every situation, we think, oh, God probably can't cope with this one. I've done it fine up until now, but I can't cope any longer. Can God cope? And because we're not used to trusting him, we do it in our own strength most of the time. We're not about to start trusting him there and then. And Hosea goes on, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate this Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. And finally, at the end of the whole book, he says this, Ephraim, what more have you to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. 
And you see the tragedy of somebody who thinks he's fruitful, whose name means fruitful, who's able to flourish in all kinds of ways by himself until he reaches a point where he can't flourish anymore. And then he's almost incapable of coming back and saying, God, I will trust you now. And it's only when we live in a, a situation of daily dependence on God that it becomes natural to trust him for the big things because we always trust him for the little things anyway. So the problem wasn't so much doubt, but disbelief. <laughs> There's a difference between the two, you see. We tend to think that faith is one end of the, the, the seesaw and doubt is the other end, but that's not the way the Bible puts it. The Bible says that the, 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 the opposites are actually faith and disbelief. You see, doubt means that you want to trust God. You just don't know how to do it. You're not sure. Your mind's split two ways. Disbelief says, I'm not going to trust God. He can't do this. This is impossible. I'm not going to follow him. And that was the attitude uh, that Ephraim so often had down through history. Doubt? Well, doubt is in the middle. That's why Os Guinness, the Christian uh, philosopher, intellectual, a few years ago wrote a book called Doubt, Faith in Two Minds. Because doubt is wanting to believe, wanting to trust God, and just not sure whether you can or not. Disbelief just rejects God utterly. So their problem really wasn't that they were doubting God, it was that they were disbelieving. They'd got used to relying on themselves so long they weren't prepared to trust God anymore. Okay, let's move on to the second one, the will problem. The problem of discontent. We want meat, we want to be fed, we want, we want to, uh, to have our desires met. This is Alan Randolph, who was a, a pastor for 50 years in San Antonio in Texas, a wise man whom I really like because he said so much about uh, the uh, Western world and the acquisitiveness of people in it and the way in which Christians become materialistic. For a guy coming from Texas, that is pretty good, I think. Not that I've got anything against Texas. But anyway, uh, he writes about Psalm 106, which is another of those three Psalms, if you remember, where it talks about the history of Israel. And he talks about a verse where the, uh, the Israelites are demanding meat from God. And, and the verse says in Psalm 106.15, he granted the request, he gave them what they wanted, but he sent leanness to their soul. And he says, this is so, so possible. That eventually, if you keep banging away at God, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. God may give you what you want, but you'll also get leanness to your soul with it. And he says this, getting what you want is really what's best. With pain, I remember times and occasions where what I wanted blinded me from seeing what was unwise and unhelpful. When God says no, rejoice, don't beg or whine. God intended life to be plentiful and content. The problem seems to be our confusion of wants with needs. Even when your wants are met, satisfaction can be short-lived. However, when your needs are provided, satisfaction endures. And he quotes 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Receiving what you need, he says, is more satisfying than getting what you want. And one of the other challenges for us in trusting God is learning to trust that he knows best when we get what we need and not being fixated on what we want rather than what we need. Randolph also says this, there are times when the least charitable thing God could do would be giving you what you ask. <laughs> It'd be the worst thing he could do for you. 
It's like, you know, your child is saying, sweeties, sweeties, I want sweeties. And you keep on stuffing them with sweeties. You wouldn't do that. Of course you wouldn't. It wouldn't be a loving thing to do. God knows best and is too kind and wise to give you what you insist on having. Any such indulgence would not be love. God's answer is, seek your happiness in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. Your heart's desire must first and always flow from a heart to serve and please God. Only then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. You shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And I think Randolph's absolutely right. That was the second problem there. How about the third one? Let's just talk about this one before we finish. The problem of distractions. And this is verses 56 to 59. The Israelites have reached their country now. They're in their own, own land. But they put God to the test, says verse 56, and rebelled against the Most High. Why did they keep on doing this? They were as unreliable as a faulty bow, says verse 57. <laughs> He's thinking about Ephraim again, isn't he? Those bowmen, those archers, whose bows were so finely tuned that they could shoot a Philistine at 100 paces. No problem. Other Israelites just looked at them as the, these sharpshooters from Ephraim and thought, wow, these guys are terrific. But if you have a faulty bow, if it's not strung properly, if the wood isn't properly seasoned, you aim at a Philistine and you probably he'll kill one of your friends. <laughs> and they're as unreliable as a faulty bow. You know, in the in the field, when they're aiming at somebody, that Philistine down there, I'm going to take him out. No, you're not. He's too far away. Here you are. Watch this. They get, they get him. No problem. They can do it just like that. Reliable to the final degree, but unreliable as far as God's concerned. Why is that? They aroused his jealousy with their idols. They angered him with their high places. And so God says, right, you're not going to worship me there anymore. And so they drop out of God's will. God uh, sets up his temple on the holy hill of Zion under David and the, sh the, the, the shrine at Shiloh, the earlier places where Israel worshipped God, they're ruled out completely. Now, does that mean that Ephraim disappears from history completely? Does that mean that there is no future for them at all? We sometimes think it's a bit like this, that either you go the way of God's good, pleasing and perfect will, or you go off the track and you go into disaster. And it certainly is possible, if you really want to do it, to end up in disaster, to turn your back completely against what God wants for you. But I think a bigger danger for many of us is that we want to do what God wants a bit, and we end up going for God's second best. That means that God hasn't thrown you away. But you never quite achieve the potential, the fruitfulness that he's got designed for you. Happened to the Israelites when he chose a king, didn't it? What didn't it? Do you remember Samuel said, Look, you don't want a king, the king's going to do this, the king's going to do that, the king's going to take your young men to war and your young girls to be uh, assistants in his palace. And oh, it's, it's going to be dreadful, it's going to cost the country a fortune. You don't want it. And he said, No, we will have a king to be like nations around us. And God says to Samuel, Look, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. Let them have it, let them have their king. You go and find Saul, I've got him already signed up and ready and so they get their king and Samuel says it makes his final speech to them after the coronation he says well you won't be needing me anymore I can go home I can leave you all this is the end of of my time with you um and then he says something which I find really really interesting he said I you've rejected God you've rejected me you don't want me around anymore but God forbid that I should sin against the Lord 
by ceasing to pray for you. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? You're still God's people. You're on that second best path. But God still cares about you, and therefore I have to as well. And the tragedy is it's possible for us to scrape into heaven, <laughs> to get there as though escaping through the fire, the flames, as the New Testament puts it, and yet just never to see the fullness of the potential that God has for our lives. So the challenge to us here is, are we accepting God's second best? Are we willing to go with him all the way to everything that he wants to get out of our lives? There's a, a verse in First Peter that gives us a clue about how to do that, I think. First Peter chapter 1. Talk to a bunch of people who've become Christians in northern Turkey, the kind of area we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, from a very pagan background. And he says this to them, though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. What's the secret to staying on the path? It's love. It's developing that love for Jesus, which means that you hate to hurt him. You hate to let him down. It means that you can say with the Apostle Paul, we make it our aim to please him because you're in love with him and you want to please the one you love. And that's the secret, isn't it? You won't be distracted by other things quite so easily if your mind is focused on the one you love. I come from a village three miles away in Scotland from the village where Thomas Chalmers, one of the greatest of Scottish clergymen, preachers and social reformers of the 19th century was born. And Chalmers was a minister before he was a Christian and he used to preach very correct and uh, elegant sermons, which didn't really make much difference. Then suddenly one day he got converted and it changed his entire life. And one of his most powerful sermons, which I'm sure I've mentioned at Great Parks before, is a sermon that's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he said was, listen, if you want power in your Christian life, fall in love with Jesus. Because when you fall in love with somebody, that drives out what was there before. It's like, you know, your girlfriend's just dumped you and you're brokenhearted and you think, I'm going to be inconsolable for the rest of my life. I will never, ever feel happy again. And then you notice somebody else and you think, whoa, hang on. And you fall in love with this other person. And uh, suddenly the previous love just disappears because you're so engrossed in your new love. And that's the expulsive power of a new affection. The new love drives out what was there before. And the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we'll be able to do what he wants and feel our emotions get involved with him. We want what he wants. His will becomes our will. And we do that good, acceptable and perfect will of God. There's a little poem written at the start of the 20th century. And with this, I'm finished because I've had far too much time for you tonight. And uh, this is a poem which I've got written in the front of one of my Bibles. And it was written in there by a girl who became a Christian years ago through myself and, uh, and my flatmate. Uh, she was a girl who had no kind of faith whatsoever. She came to live next door to us in the house where we were all living. And uh, she started to share a bit of her life with us. We started to share Jesus with her. And she became a Christian. That was brilliant. And she was struck by this little poem written by John Oxenham back in the early 20th century. And she wrote it in the front of my Bible. And it, it, it talks about the three ways in which you can live life. To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. And the high soul climbs the highway. And the low soul gropes the low. And in between, 
on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. God's second best. But to every man there openeth a highway and a low, and every man decideth the way his soul shall go. And I guess that, if you had to sum it up in a few lines, is the challenge of Psalm 78. Let's just pray together for a second, shall we? Heavenly Father, we've raced through a very long psalm, and it maybe doesn't seem like racing to, to people listening because it's taken a long time. But thank you for the complexity and the fullness of this psalm. It really is full of stuff from history that we need to pay attention to because it applies to every generation, as Asaph remarked at the start. Not just the Israelites who were born into the, your ancient nation, but those who are now the people of God from every tribe and nation around the world. And the truth goes on being relevant to all of us. Help us to avoid the different ways in which we can go away from your will. Thank you for the assurance in the psalm that you remain faithful. You remain patient, but you are a God of judgment. And help us for not to slip onto God's second best route, but to stay in the way of your will for our lives. So at the end, we can look back and say, I've fought the fight. <laughs> I've, I've finished the course and henceforth, it's the crown that's laid up for me. We all want to get there. And so we pray for ourselves and we pray for one another that you'll make that true. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Stop sharing here.